Okay, friends, welcome. Sorry to keep you a few minutes waiting, though it certainly sounds like you were enjoying fellowship with one another. We're delighted to welcome you back this evening for a special Q&A session here at Legacy Conference. Really, we always enjoy this opportunity. We hear the men that we invite for Legacy in the pulpit, and certainly they speak and preach with authority because they speak and preach God's Word. But then in a Q&A session, it's really an opportunity to further hear from our speakers, hear them further unpack and develop with maybe some uh, foresight and uh, intention towards application, towards the Christian life, as well as simply that you can hear a bit more of who they are, even before they're pastors or, or seminary presidents, that they're simply Christians, and there's value there in hearing their testimony. Why don't we ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time, and then we'll think through a few things together tonight, okay? Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. Again, thankful for the Lord's day that we serve a risen, living Savior whom we long to see. We ask that in this hour you would be honored and glorified, that you'd help bring encouragement and instruction and further building up of the body as we discuss all that we've heard this weekend. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we get to a few Q&A questions, very briefly, I had to find an opportunity to mention a few more books. <laughs> but you'll be okay, because in a moment, I'm also going to ask Ian to comment on a few more books. And I know you want to hear him, so hang tight just for a moment. All throughout this conference, and even men, the pre-conference that we had, there's been talk and mention of the early church, the 200s, the 300s especially, the 400s, what the early church believed, what they wrestled with as they sought to understand Scripture properly. Some of the early church coming together then responding to error and putting forth clear statements of what they believed really a, a public exposition of what the Bible says concerning Christ, concerning the Trinity, etc. Some of that might be maybe uncharted waters or territory for you. It's important. Uh, it's an important period in church history, certainly not, not for one um, camp or another, but for Orthodox Christianity. That, that's our heritage and bloodline. There's a new title by Nate Pickowitz, pastor up in New Hampshire, Christ and Creed, a small paperback. I think he very helpfully walks through what are some of those early creeds. You've heard of probably the Nicene Creed, um, the Council of Chalcedon 451. Very helpful to introduce you to that while helping to make sense of the history of the time. I think you'd be edified and encouraged by that. Comment was made the other night about a very important children's title, The Moon is Always Round, by Johnny Gibson. Just in the last month, his wife Jackie has produced a volume, speaking even from her own experience, which she had learned, uh, a book entitled You Are Still a Mother, a personal book for any who has walked through uh, a stillbirth or a miscarriage to bring hope for you who might be grieving. We wanted to turn your attention to that again. A small book, maybe you missed it, but an important book. Two more, briefly. Earlier this year, there were some really interesting things happening in America that suddenly people were trying to think through what is revival? You remember what the news was reporting? I think in Kentucky, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe some good, maybe quite a bit of bad, but bringing to our attention, okay, what do we think about revival? Can that still happen? An old title by William Sprague, Lectures on Revival, very good, very important. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones thought very highly of this. You'd find that in the book tent, something even we ought to be praying for. One more, I know you love the ministry of Paul Washer, many, many of you here. Uh, just recently, he had talked about in his library 
a title that had been out of print for many years that he found very helpful as he has his books and specifically the Puritans. He's trying to read through and reference them on passages of scripture or on themes and theological topics. The Banner of Truth wonderfully has reproduced this, A Guide to the Puritans by Robert Martin in beautiful cloth-bound form. It's a title that's been out of print. I'm not sure why. Maybe Ian would be able to comment to that. It had been out of print for 15 to 20 years. Uh, Paperback volumes would be used on Amazon for over $300. Thankfully, it's back in print and cloth-bound. You'll find that as a wonderful help and resource. But that's enough about me talking about books. Ian, there's a few books that you have, some important figures in church history. Could you talk about them? And then we'll begin to navigate a few other questions. So Daniel gave me these books and said, you need to talk about them. (laughs) Caught red-handed. That's a very surreptitious way of... um, John G. Payton, a missionary to the Hebrides, uh, now called Vanuatu. Um, where do I begin? John Payton was born in 1824 in a small village about 80 miles south of Glasgow in the southwest of Scotland, uh, born into a godly home. Uh, when he was about 20, he walked the 80 miles to Glasgow to start life as a teacher. He had a wonderful uh, ministry as a teacher and as a Sunday school leader in the Reformed Presbyterian Church that he was a part of. But he had this burden that he should go to the South Seas. And He shared that with the elders in his church and with the ministers in the presbytery. And an older minister said, "Uh, Mr. Payton, if you go there, they'll eat you. They they were cannibals. And he said, sir, it matters not to me whether they eat me or the worms eat me. I will have as fair a body as you on the day of resurrection. 1858, he goes to the New Hebrides. Um, Some missionaries had gone before him. Most of them had been uh, killed immediately and eaten. Uh, He had married just before the long nine-month sea voyage. Uh, A month after they arrived, the child was born. His wife died. The baby died. But he persevered. And he had a remarkable ministry. When I first read this as a very young Christian, it was the first I think the first Christian biography I ever read, I couldn't put it down. It was like a boy's own adventure at one level. Um, He was determined, God helping him, that he would see a living church of Jesus Christ planted amongst these cannibals. Um, A friend of mine has just returned from the New Hebrides, Vanuatu, preparing a documentary on Peyton. And he says, Ian, wherever you go, there are Presbyterian churches and everyone knows of John Gibson Payton. If you had to read any biography, um, I would encourage you, I would exhort you to read John G. Payton. Um, 17th century was a time of turmoil throughout England and Scotland. There was a civil war in England, uh, 1640, 1646. Um, Scotland, although they were under the same king, uh, was really a separate nation. Uh, Scotland had been uh, wonderfully revived in 1560. The Reformation came to Scotland, John Knox. Scotland became uh, a reformed uh, Presbyterian gospel-centered nation, but the king had all power and he saw over about three or four decades to remove the, the curse of Presbyterianism and impose Episcopalianism so he could control it. 1638 was a seismic moment. The National Covenant, the Scots basically rebelled against the king. 
Uh, you kicked our king out in 1776, you remember, before that Boston Tea Party. Um, well, the Scots said to the king, enough is enough. Jesus Christ is the king and head of the church. And from 1638 to 1660, 1670, Scotland produced a remarkable galaxy of men, men of the covenant, the national covenant, men who were committed to the headship of Jesus Christ and his church. And one little book by Jock Purvis called Fair Sunshine, Character Studies of the Scottish Covenanters. Uh, Joan and I, well, I ministered, Joan helping me, supporting me, encouraging me in a small town right in the midst of covenanting country, southwest of Scotland. And this is an easily read, thrilling uh, book. Parents could read to their children. Children could read themselves. Parents could read themselves. Stirring stories of gospel faithfulness that was costly. Many of them were executed, hung, drawn, and quartered publicly. Why? Because they said Jesus Christ was the king and head of the church. If you wanted to go in a little more depth, um, J.K. Hewison uh, Banner published this fine two-volume edition. I've got a, well, I've got this edition, but I've got a much older edition as well. Um, and in greater detail, um, he highlights the profound intellectual, spiritual significance of the Scottish Covenanters. Um, men like David Dixon, Samuel Rutherford, um, I could go on and on. They, they were the equal and probably even the intellectual superiors to the English Puritans. Uh, John Owen thought the Scottish Puritans were unrivaled for their intellectual, spiritual brilliance. And these would be books that you could pick up, uh, put down, pick up, put down. You don't read them in a one-er, um, lots of chapters. So it's a period of turmoil. It's a period which reminds us that faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ can be costly even unto death. Ian, that's exactly why I wanted you to comment on those. Thank you. We need to be prepared. We have no idea what might happen in our own life and generation. We need to be aware of those who have gone before us, read of their faithfulness to Christ even though it cost them, and plead and ask that God would give us that same strength and grace for whatever we might walk through in days ahead. Don, to comment on, uh, we earlier recommended your title, study through the book of Habakkuk, the trial of that. In that is woven in your personal testimony as well as a very significant trial that you walked through. Could you briefly share with us your testimony of how you came to saving faith and then that which I'm referring to? What do you want me to do? Is, is the key word in there briefly? Because <laughs> that's uh, <clears throat> that could take a time. Are we good with the microphone? Okay. And just remember, please yeah, hold that there close. There we go. Okay. Excellent. Yes, I uh, was actually telling some of the people at lunch a little bit about my uh, conversion to Christ. I grew up in a nominally uh, Christian home and thought that I was a Christian throughout my high school and college days. Um, when I started law school, I had, the, I had a very unusual, I, I, I have to be one of the very few law students who ever did this. I started my day reading a newspaper column by a famous Christian evangelist. And it was a kind of an advice column and his advice to whatever the uh, problem was that people wrote into uh, to ask for help on was always the same. Repent and believe in Christ. Repent and believe in Christ. And I was reading that on a day-to-day -day basis, thinking that I was a Christian, and, uh, but not, not realizing that the Lord was kind of plowing the ground in my own heart. Um, several months into that, I 
spent an evening with a friend. We were partying. And in the midst of this, thinking that I was a Christian, I also simultaneously thought, as we were doing our thing, um, I thought, I'm, I'm sinning against God, and I don't care. And so we, the drinking and all of that stuff went on uh, deep into the night. I woke up in the morning, looked at myself in the mirror, and I was proud of what I had done the prior night. Wicked grin curled across my lips and thought, yeah, you really tied one on last night. And in the very next moment, literally like a light switch on and off, that's how instantaneous it was, I was struck with uh, terror, with the fear of God, and the thought that reverberated in my mind, you call yourself a Christian, how could you do what you did last night? And I was ashamed, I was uh, deeply convicted of sin, and I had the terrifying thought that if I don't receive Jesus Christ right now, I'm going to go to hell forever. There were, there were in, in my mind, in the urgency of the moment, it, it was like I had five minutes to, to live or die, so to speak. So I uh, went, hurried into my room, I got down on my knees, I confessed my sin, I asked Christ to save me, and there was an immediate change in my life, you know, going forward from that. The Word of God became alive to me, and uh, my life changed, and all of that, Daniel, was, uh, you know, it was the fruit of, of a true conversion, and, uh, you know, I thank God for those times, and so that was, that was and then my life, you know, 40 years went by, and now I'm here with you. So that's kind of the thumbnail <laughs> thumbnail story of it. Sure. And then in the course of <clears throat> your Christian life, there was a period of intense trial when you received some very unexpected news. Would you be okay yeah, sure. sharing about yeah, that? Yeah, it's all, it's all in the book. Um, after my conversion, one of the things that happened in my heart was um, I had... My, my dad was not a Christian. He was, he was a, a coarse, intimidating man. And we were not close as, uh, as I grew up. But after my conversion, the Lord put a love in my heart for him. And so I started to pray for him, reach out to him, uh, doing what I could to share the gospel with him. He was initially hostile to that. He did not want me to be a Christian. He tried to tell me to stop following Christ. And I told him, Dad, no, Jesus Christ has changed my life. I'll never stop following him. And so, but born out of that conflict in the years that followed, I prayed for him, I reached out to him, and our relationship uh, became close. And as I prayed for him, I even prayed, Lord, if it takes a tragedy, uh, bring, him, bring him to Christ. I, as it were, I put my life on the altar, said, take me if it would save him. Uh, that's how earnestly I desired his salvation. Um, but as the Lord would have it, that's not what I got to witness. Uh, he and my brother died in a plane crash on Thanksgiving Day, 1988. I was a, still a young Christian, barely been a Christian for five years by that point. And so that, that and, and I, was not, uh, I was not well grounded in Scripture, especially in doctrine, at that point. And so I had a lot of difficult questions, the age-old questions of how can a loving God allow evil? How can, you know, how can prayers go unanswered that are earnest, sincere, and for the glory of God? And in the book, I, I dig into those answers. And I went through, you know, I don't mind telling you, especially since it's in print, it's like, it's not like, you know, this is a secret I'm asking you to keep at this point. Uh, you know, I went through about a seven-year period of, of, of darkness. It was, a very, it was a very dark time in my heart, and it was a vertically-oriented uh, darkness, so to speak, in that I just did not understand the ways of God and how God, you know, what God was doing, why he would allow that. And, uh, you know, it took a, a lot of time in Scripture to kind of sort through that and to come to some answers. Uh, you know, I think I have those answers now. 
I don't look back. I don't have that darkness anymore. I accept the fact that my dad, um, you know, by all appearances died without Christ. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, and the reason, and the only reason that anyone can be okay with that is to know, is to know God and to realize, you know, the conclusion of my book is, is that, you know, the, the answer to all of our questions is found in the simplicity of the fact that, that God is who he is, God does what he does, and that's enough. If you know that God is sovereign, you know that he is infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely loving then you interpret your circumstances through that lens rather than trying to interpret God through the lens of your adverse circumstances. We do not have the capacity to understand the fullness of what God does when he allows or brings, I, I prefer to say, when he sends these dark providences into our lives. We don't have the capacity to understand them or to have any kind of perspective on them, especially in the moment, that is reliable. But what is reliable is the knowledge of God revealed in Scripture, and our hearts can rest in that uh, no matter what. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. Ian, this morning you wonderfully walked us and brought us to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, thinking of the majesty that our Savior is our great high priest. He is the intercession. Going back to Hebrews chapter 4, Verse 15, that he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Can you talk a bit more about that? In what ways is he able to sympathize? And then even, I'm thinking specifically in John Murray's collected writings, he has a phrase that he's able to offer omnipotent compassion. Can you unpack that for us as best as can? Well, read John Murray. Um, John Murray is one of the most formative influences in my life as a Christian and as a pastor. Um, the four Johns, John the Apostle, John Calvin, John Owen, and John Murray. Something very significant about being a John. Um, well, I think there are two things one can say. Um, there is omnipotent compassion because he is the God man. We must never confuse the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. The, the early church council 451 at Chalcedon said the, the union in Christ of deity and humanity is without confusion, without separation, without division, without mixture, admixture. They were out of their depth. They didn't say what that union was because they didn't know, but they said, we know what it isn't. So you mustn't commingle the deity and humanity. We, we need a truly human Jesus to stand before God in our place as the better than Adam. So as, as God, he is able to give omnipotent compassion but as the man Christ Jesus, as the God-man, he is able to give compassion that's commensurate with the sorrows, the disappointments, the devastations that he experienced in his own humanity. There's a remarkable statement in the second servant song. Um, where the servant of the Lord says, and the servant of the Lord is the promised Messiah, uh, the serpent crusher, the one who will come and redeem the people of God. And he says, my life has been a waste of space. My life has amounted to nothing. The, the two words that are used there, one is tohu, which is used of the earth was without form. And the other one was Chebel, uh, Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. My life has been a waste of space. It's amounted to nothing. That's the sinless son of God. 
If he couldn't have said that, he couldn't have been our savior. It would have meant his humanity would have been an unreal humanity. Um, a humanity that was in some ways at a distance from our humanity. He, this is sinless despondency in the face of vileness and wickedness. So we have a savior who, who knows our frame, not simply or merely, dare I say, because of divine omniscience, but because he is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Uh, he is dust, as we are dust. He's glorified dust, but it's our dust. It's our dust that's on the throne of heaven. And so we have a savior who understands the tragedies, the sadnesses, the disappointments, the hopes, the joys, the fears that his brothers and sisters go through. So um, he's able to sympathize with us because, as the writer says, he has a fellow feeling for us because he knows exactly what it is to be just like you and just like me except sin apart. That's why his temptations were more radical than any of ours could be. We would all cave in. He never caved in. Uh, I would like to go on and on, but omnipotent compassion beautifully sums up the Savior that we have who is able to come alongside us and not simply put his arm around us and say, you know, I know what you're going through, although that can be helpful, but is able to say, I know what you're going through and I can help you in the going through of it. Amen. Don, yesterday evening, it was a big jumbo jet. It took some time going down that runway to then soar up into the skies, the stratosphere, Maybe for some even, the first time thinking through this, this aspect of Christ's life, the importance of his obedience, and you made some comments about its connection with our own assurance. It seems like sometimes in the Christian life, yes, people can wrestle with assurance, um, maybe even be looking inward to find assurance. Can you speak to this issue of assurance and further tie that to what it is Christ did. Well, yeah, it's such a common matter when people start to lack assurance. It's such a common response to that, to be looking inward for, you know, signs of spiritual life and things like that. And that's not the place, in my opinion, to, to start. When someone lacks assurance, what you need to do, and I can have someone in our church that specifically comes to mind that I had this conversation with her a few years ago. The, we don't want to feed that introspection. The first thing when you lack assurance is to look outward to Christ and to ask, you know, who was Christ? What did he do? What does his work signify? So that you're, you're looking first to Christ rather than to self and asking yourself, do I believe that? You know, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe in Christ? And do you understand what Christ has done? Because it is in what Christ has done that we find our salvation and our security and our assurance. He loved us. He gave himself up for us. And in his life, which was fully obedient, in his death, which was the full payment for our sins, Christ has accomplished for his people everything that is necessary for their salvation. And so the first question is not what you are like inside, but what has Christ done? Do you understand that? Do you believe that? And to start there, and that's the path to getting into assurance. You know, and, and as, you know, as James says, we all stumble in many ways. And when we stumble, the temptation is start to start to think that, well, maybe God's withdrawn from me, uh, you know, what's you know, God's angry with me or all of that. And the obedience of Christ is our 
key to unlocking a lot of that confusion and a lot of those doubts. Because God accepts us not on the basis of our obedience, which is always imperfect, which is always mixed in its motives at its best. And so there's never going to be assurance found in looking first and foremost to the way that we obey. The, the assurance is found in understanding that Christ has fully accomplished everything that God requires on our behalf. We're resting in him, we're depending upon him, and in him we have the full acceptance with God that we long for. And then the other matters of what our desires are, what our obedience like, we, then those questions come in. But first we establish with clarity the person and work of Christ and what he's done for his people. Do you believe that? Yes, I do. That's a whole different starting point than trying to look inside for, um, you know, for, for the answers. We start by looking outward to Christ, and then we ask these other questions, and that completely reframes the whole issue of assurance. Hmm. Thank you. Ian, you had opportunity in our pre-conference to spend some time with the men thinking about our Lord's experience in Gethsemane. I'm thinking of Luther's comment where he says, Jesus, before he can be our example, he must first be our savior. Once he's our savior, then he can be our example. There's much about the life of faith that we learn, of course, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 and 3, looking unto him, the author and perfecter of faith. But when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, Is there something we need to safeguard about that account? What is happening there when he is asking, not my will, but yours be done? Our Lord's experience in the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most profound revelations that we have in Holy Scripture. Here is God the Son in our flesh who has only ever known the smile of his Father upon him, who has only ever heard, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now what he has known, dare I put it this way, what he has known theologically from times eternal He's now beginning to experience existentially in his humanity in the garden. All the lights are going out. All the lights are going out. There isn't a pinprick in the cosmos. Soon he will cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to take the narrative seriously. Here is someone who is agonizing with the prospect of becoming the sin bearer. And the agony rests in this holy, sinless humanity is being confronted not just with the notion of being cursed, and abandoned, but with the existential reality of being cursed and abandoned. And so the human will of Jesus rightly and righteously recoils from what he begins to begin to see that lies before him. His humanity is not omniscient. And so he prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If he couldn't have prayed that, he wouldn't have been the savior we needed. If he could float effortlessly through this world, if he could cruise to glory, he couldn't have been our savior. It would have meant that holy humanity could take wickedness and evil in its stride and not bat an eyelid. 
He's convulsed with anguish at the prospect. But then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. Holy humanity humbles itself before the heavenly father and before his own divine will. You know, he's one person, but he has two natures, so he has two wills, a divine will and a human will. And in the conflict, he, as the better than Adam, prays the purest, holiest, highest prayer a human can ever pray this side of glory. Not my will, but your will be done. The Bible is very honest, very stark in the way it confronts us with spiritual truth. Um, it, it doesn't pull its punches. It leaves us at times reeling, uh, bewildered. There, there, there is a mystery. You know, we, we, we mustn't explain the gospel as if we had answers to every question. Because we don't. We're not Christians because we've got answers to every question. We're Christians because the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. Like the Apostle Paul, we need to say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Um, there is bewilderment and perplexity in the life of faith in, in the book of Habakkuk, um, chapter 1, verse 13. The prophet says, um, you have purer eyes than to look on sin. He's not making a statement about God's sinlessness. He's expressing his bewilderment. You're of purer eyes than to look on sin, but you're raising up these godless, wicked Babylonians to smash your covenant people. What's going on? And Luther, uh, Luther um, Isaiah, Isaiah 45, verse 15. Truly you are a God who hides himself. There is a hiddenness, there's a mystery, there's a, a profundity and that's why theology should always rest ultimately in doxology if, if preaching doesn't lead people to say how great is the God we adore we've missed it all so in the garden we're confronted with this bewildering spectacle of the God man agonizing at the darkening prospect of experiencing what he had never experienced before, having every light in the cosmos go out for him. So I'm not sure if that answered the question, but at least it got me the opportunity to say what I wanted to say. Check that off the box here. Thank you, Ian. Don, our theme is the glory of the sun. I want to tie that to a statement I heard you make over a decade ago, I think, which, wow, time flies. Back in seminary, when you were at Grace Church, you made a comment to parents about taking the long view. Can you unpack that and tie that to our theme as a word of encouragement and exhortation to any parent here tonight? Well, I need uh, a long time to remember what I said 10 years ago um, when I don't well remember what I said this morning. <laughs> you understand. That's why you laugh. <laughs> uh, I think the... Uh, let me just start from the parenting angle, and then you can flesh it out with anything that I want to sure. that you might want to add. Um, the when when we were raising our kids, there were certain parenting materials that were in circulation and prominently used even at Grace Community Church. That were, uh, you know, in my in my judgment, they were so focused on 
getting your kid to obey in a certain way that particular that particular day and it focuses and puts all of the pressure on the parents on a day-by-day -day basis to extract a certain kind of behavior from your children as you're raising them. The, the pressure of that is immense when you've got a whole church that's revolving around that, the, the temptations to hypocrisy and uh, covering things up is, is really great. And I think it's an entirely wrong way to think about the parenting of young children. The parenting of young children should have a long view in mind, not necessarily what their behavior is on any given day when they're three years old, but rather the goal of parenting to the extent that God blesses you and enables you to see this is what kind of character they have in their late teens and their early 20s, uh, what you know, you're shaping these children over a long period of time. And what you really want is not so much an outwardly obedient kid who's th when they're three, that's nice if you have it, but not all of us get that uh, privilege. But what you want is someone that has a, a, a young man, a young woman, that has a tender heart that's receptive to the Spirit of God, teachable under the Word of God, and that you have some measure of influence as they're making life decisions that will determine the rest of the course of their life. That's what matters in parenting. And when we talk about, when I talk about taking the long view, it's especially designed to the parents of young children, realizing there's gonna be ups and downs. We had one of, our, one of our girls, we have five girls, so you'd never be able to guess which one I'm talking about, okay? Uh, in case this gets out and circulates back home. Where, uh, you know, she had such an angry spirit and so difficult to control as a two, three, four-year-old, however, however, however old she was, that uh, you know, I just I just started to recognize, and Nancy and I talked about it at the time, that uh, you know, progress is not going to be measured by instant change from one day to one day. It's maybe that it's a little bit better six months from now than it is than it is right now. That's taking the long view of parenting and realizing that it takes, uh, you know, it takes a lifetime with the help of the Spirit of God to shape the heart of a child. That when you couple that with the theme of this conference, the glory of the sun, the sovereignty of the sun, the goodness of the sun, then you're able to marry those two things together. And rather than feeling the pressure put on by poorly written so-called Christian materials, I'm probably being a lot more blunt than I should be, um, but you know, it's just, it's the way it is. Um, rather than feeling the pressure of that, rather then you can rest in the fact that we're doing this over time, we're doing it in the context of the sovereign Savior who loves us, and we're going to rest in Him for whatever He produces as the result of our parenting. And so you rest in Christ over a long period of time rather than fussing over whether your kid is externally obedient in the moment when they're three years old. There's just, to me, it's just obvious that that's the right way to approach parenting. And then you can shape your day-to-day -day decisions by long-term priorities rather than simply reacting to the obedience or disobedience of the moment. I've never read a book on Christian parenting in my life. Um, can you say that again? I've never read a book on Christian parenting in my life. Apart from a little booklet that William still wrote entitled Bringing Up Children in Faith, Not Fear. And, and the one thing I just wanted to add, I, I agree with all of that. About 30 years ago, Joan and I were at a conference in Scotland and Elizabeth Elliot was speaking at it. And she said something that riveted both of us. She said, as she began, she was speaking the most important thing a father can ever do for his children is to love their mother. And the most important thing a mother can ever do for her children is to love their father. And I thought immediately of Ephesians 5, where before Paul gets to children and parents, parents and children, or fathers and children, he, he spends time with wives and husbands, husbands and wives. Uh, wives to submit to their husbands, not because they're perfect or better than them. The wife might be more spiritual than her husband, uh, but he is to lead 
his wife. He's to exercise godly headship. She's to recognize that and submit lovingly and not grudgingly to it. And the husband, correspondingly, is not to domineer his wife. He's to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He's to serve her. I've come not to be served, but to serve. He's to be a servant-hearted head to his wife. And I think that's why Paul then goes on in Ephesians 6, 4 to say to fathers especially, bring them up. Now, it's a very prosaic translation, bring them up. Ek trefo. It means fondly cherish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The, the atmosphere in which you go about parenting is paramount. You know the old song, it's not what you say, it's the way that you say it. It's not what you sing, it's the way that you sing it. Um, so I just always try to remind myself first and the people that I've been privileged to minister to over the years is that the relationship of husband to wife and wife to husband is absolutely paramount. Children pick up vibes. Children can cope with their parents messing up. No problem. Children can cope with their fathers failing them. No problem. If children see that the disposition of their father and mother's hearts is towards them, and they see in their father and mother a relationship that mirrors that of Christ in the church. So fathers especially, and husbands, lead your wives by loving them sacrificially. That will do more for your children than anything else. You've spoken, <clears throat> both of you, about parents. Both of you also happen to be grandparents. Could you speak to some of the grandparents here about the unique season, privilege, opportunity that you might have in that role to either support your children as they seek to parent or even to influence your grandchildren towards the glory of the Son? You can always give them back at night. <laughs> Yeah, that's very that's very true. The um, uh, you know we're still kind of early in the grandparent uh, days. It, our first grandchild was born six years ago in December, so I I can't speak much from personal experience. Scripture says that uh, something to the effect of in Proverbs that grandchildren are the the glory of the, of the grandfather and uh, things things along those lines. Um, probably, um, you know, there's so many directions you could take this, uh, Danny, but I, you know, I think that one of the most important things for grandparents to realize is that there is, um, there is a certain deference with which you approach it. Um, your job is not to tell them to raise the kids the way you want them to rate, to be raised. Um, you know, they're the parents and they get the final say on it. And so there's a certain deference with which we approach it. We, we hold those relationships lightly. Um, and, um, you know, and sometimes we're going to see things that cause us sorrow, pain, concern. But again, we just have to come back to the fact that we trust the Lord to work out his will in all things. He's good in all that he does. And we, you know, and we trust him even for the souls of our grandchildren. Um, you know, and, and adding to what Ian was saying about our children, one of the things that, that I was, had in my mind as we were raising our children, I have in mind is with our grandchildren, and I'm such a miserable failure at the good principle that I'm about to articulate, but one of the things that I wanted to, that I wanted to do as a parent was I wanted to pray daily for each of my children. I wanted to pray daily for their salvation and because if they're saved, then, you know, whatever happens on earth is really secondary. Um, if they're not saved, and we don't control that as parents, we cannot guarantee the salvation of our children. If we could, then that we would be sovereign in salvation and not the Spirit of God. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But just to, just to say that... Um, you know, we, we, we parent to the glory of God. We parent in obedience with our own 
attitudes and actions as we raise children, as we are involved with grandchildren, but we have to leave the results to God. And we cannot guarantee the outcome of anything. I could not guarantee the outcome of my dad's salvation as much as I wanted that. I cannot guarantee the outcome of anyone under the course of my ministry. I cannot guarantee the salvation of anyone in my family. And so while that's very humbling to realize, it humbles us to the point that it casts us in dependence upon Christ to be a man of prayer, to be a parent, a mom or dad of prayer, and committing them day by day to, to Christ, who alone can save them. Ian, you have a friend in Sinclair Ferguson, to drop a name. I've heard Sinclair Ferguson in sermons through the years, time to time, he'll weave in this one statement. It's the most wonderful thing in all of the world to be a Christian. Could you speak to some of our young people in here about the glory of the sun and why it is the most wonderful thing in all the world to be a Christian? Teenagers, younger than that, there's a variety of people in here. We're speaking to everyone here tonight. I became a Christian in my late teens, um, probably you would say in junior year, an ultimate year of high school, um, from no Christian background. For me, to hear that God loved me and spared not his only son for me, literally blew the socks off of me. Um, lit well, metaphorically blew the socks off of me. <laughs> I've got, my wife, buy, my, my wife buys me nice socks. Um, they, they make up for my dull personality, I think. Um, but, you know, there's, there's so much that can be said, but, you know, Young, young lads in particular, just, just think on this. The God who needed nothing and no one to complete him, who lived in eternal felicity and blessedness, who out of nothing, by the mere word of his mouth, created galaxies beyond counting. that he loved you and gave his son into hell so that you might one day come to heaven. The greatest blessing in the gospel is not that God forgives us in Christ. That would be, we, we could live with the good of that to all eternity. We would walk around the, the mansions of glory saying, I'm a forgiven sinner. I'm a forgiven sinner. We'd be like little goldfish going around a bowl. We'd never get tired. We, I'm a forgiven sinner. The, the omega point of the gospel is that God makes hell-deserving sinners into sons and daughters. He adopts us into his family. We are joint heirs. Think of this. If you're a Christian, you're a joint heir together with Christ of the glory of God. An heir together with Christ. You know, the, the, there's nothing in, in Tolkien or J.K. Rowling more fantastic than that. And you can walk about this earth. People won't give you a second glance in Winston Salem. And all heaven is looking at you in wonder. Angels just bewildered that you belong unlike them to the heavenly father and are heirs together of his glory with his son. I'll, I'll close with this. I remember I was, a, I was a student at university. I was on a mission 
We were doing door-to-door doing -door visitation. We were normally out in twos, but there was an unequal number, so I, I was out myself. It was a miserable, wet summer's night in Scotland, of which there are many, um, knocking on doors, and no one was interested, and I was drenched, and I was miserable, and I, I actually, I just wanted to go home to my mother. <laughs> I was 23, I think, and mommy, I love. And I was about to give up and go back to the church hall when this thought struck me. Some words of Thomas Watson. Remember who thou art, blood royal of heaven. I thought, wow, blood royal of heaven. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. And I forgot about the rain. I was still wet, but I forgot about the rain and kept knocking on the doors. To be a Christian is to be the most blessed, privileged being in the cosmos. And we need to think more about that. John Owen, in, in volume two, um, has, has a phenomenal passage. Well, there are all, there's so many phenomenal passages in Owen. Um, I think this is maybe page 27, volume two. He says, Every day while we live is Christ's wedding day. I remember reading that thinking, are you serious? Every day while we live is Christ's wedding day. And what he goes on to say is he looks upon all his people with unblemished delight. And I think, but I'm a sinner. Yes. Does the Savior not know that? Absolutely. But Zephaniah 3, 17, he rejoices over us with loud singing. You may not become a star quarterback for some second-rate Cal uh, Northern Calif uh, Carolina team. Is it UNC you have in here? UNC, we are Crimson Tide people, just in case you wondered, we're, we're Crimson Tide people. We're going to pray for you in a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we'll rise from 11, we won yesterday, won yesterday. Um, you know, you may not make a name for yourself in this world, but all heaven looks at you with wonderment. Thank you, men. Can we thank our speakers? We're going to pray in a moment, and before we dismiss you for dinner, just a few more items we want to relay to you. Dinner's provided. Uh, we have Subway sandwiches, I believe a variety of turkey or ham, served in a similar fashion. You may eat and enjoy them everywhere. Uh, just be mindful as well as, as you see trash or have trash, if you could please help uh, with that, disposing of that. I believe coffee will be available. Book tent, again, will be open. We have roughly an hour from 6 to 7. We'll meet back in here at 7 for a final session. Our brother here, Don Green, will be preaching on the theme, The Reigning Christ the reigning sun, and we certainly look forward to that. And then following will be an extended time of responding in musical worship to the Lord with all that we've taken in, quite appropriate. A reminder for parents, if you have children ages uh, just a few months to two years old, please make sure that you go check them out of nursery um, at, during this dinner hour, and then you can check them back in. Why don't we ask for the Lord's blessing upon our meal? Don, would you be willing to pray for that? And before we pray, I just want to thank you, Danny, for all that you've done to organize and to host us and to lead in this. Um, speaking for myself and for Nancy, we've had the most wonderful reception from you and from this very fine church. I know I speak for Ian in saying thank you for all that you've done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your grace, for your ability to perfect your power in our weakness, 
for the love of Christ for our souls manifested at the cross, manifested in the keeping of us here in this life, one day to be manifested in multifaceted splendor when we gather around the throne. Father, may everyone under the sound of our voice be there in that final day. Thank you for this food. Thank you for this conference. We pray for your blessing upon all of it. And we pray, Father, as we look forward, as Ian and I will be leaving in the morning, we pray that as we go, that your spirit would remain and abide upon this very fine church, upon their elders. May the ministry abound to the glory of God, to the edification of the saints, and the salvation of many, many sinners still in the years to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.